Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to another episode of What I Wish I Learned. We're, we're back. We're finally back. Again. We apologize for that break. Um, no, I got some beef with you. You made it seem like I was dying or something terrible happened on the Instagram page. Okay, well, you told me to post that. So, <laughs> uh, To fill everybody in, nothing terrible happened. I've just been working two jobs right now between teaching and campaign work. I am completely booked out my own schedule so it's a bit crazy so podcast unfortunately got put on the back burner but we're back with do you uh, realize how often we say that we're back (laughs) literally every episode is like we're back no we were pretty consistent season three (laughs) yeah um but but we're back with probably arguably going to be one of our most interesting and relevant lessons to date um in light of everything that's going on probably everyone in the world at this point has heard with the invasion of Russia into Ukraine and just how complicated, intertwined, and just like just interesting this whole story is, um, we thought it would be A, appropriate, and B, like really enlightening for everybody to get a grasp of what this conflict actually means and why it's more than just the last two to three years of history. It's actually a thousand years of history playing out right now. Like this is the like major catalytic event of of what has been brewing for a very long time between these two nations. Yeah, it's going to be fascinating. Um, but real quick, we just wanted to make a note that we know we were supposed to do the last episode of the drug series for this one, but we just decided that this Ukraine stuff was a little bit more relevant. Um, and yeah. plus, people weren't as interested, I think, towards the end of the drug series. And so... No, I think that's not the case. I just think that... Um what's it called legal drugs wasn't going to be as informing we were just going to talk about uh, uh big tobacco and the alcohol industries really interesting stuff great notes i we might come back to it and do like a patreon episode on it later one day probably come summertime once one of my jobs ends um but you know keep an eye out for that so but like noah said this ukraine thing is going to be far more um you know, informational, yeah, and relevant. So it's going to be great. So um, anything else you want to say before you cue the music? No, I'm All good. Right, do your thing. Okay. To start our series or our episode on Ukraine today... I want to take a look back on the last three years and how critical they have been to this moment where we are on February 27th, 2022. So I'm just going to give you like this timeline of what has developed right now. Starting from May 20th, 2019, President Zelensky is inaugurated as the president of Ukraine and promises to end the war in the Donbass and a region. This guy, and we'll talk about the regions and the presidents all in detail here in a moment. Zelensky will crack down on pro-Russian Ukrainian, pro-Russian Ukrainian oligarchs, including the ones that are linked to owning a series of TV channels that were pro-Moscow and spread pro-Russian propaganda in Ukraine in late March and early 2021. Uh, Large quantities of Russian arms and equipment are moved into occupied Crimea, along with 80,000 Russian troops along the Ukrainian border of the Donbass conflict region. September 2021, Ukraine conducts military exercises with with NATO troops. September 2021, up to 200,000 Russian troops take part in a massive Russian-Belarusian military exercise in response to the Ukrainian one. Zelensky will accuse Russia of planning to overthrow the Ukrainian government. November 30th, 2021. Putin claims an expansion of NATO presence in Ukraine is a red line for the Kremlin due to potential offensive use of NATO equipment on Moscow. December 1st, 2021. Russia accuses Ukraine of deploying 125,000 troops, half of its army, on the border of Donbass to confront pro-Russian separatists. December 3rd, 2021, Russia criticizes Ukraine for being 
for using a Turkish-made drone against pro-Russian separatists in the Donbass, claiming it violates the Minsk peace agreement. January 2nd, 2022, President Biden speaks with President Zelensky and states that the U.S. and its allies will respond decisively if Russia further invades Ukraine. January 17th, coming up almost a month of when this started, British Defense Secretary states that it will supply the Ukraine with anti-armor weaponry. January 25th, 2022, Ukraine Defense Minister claims that there is no threat of full-scale Russian invasion of Ukraine. <laughs> that guy was wrong. December, uh, January 26th, 2022, NATO ships and fighter jets are sent to Eastern Europe, building up the escalation. January 28th, 2022, Zelensky calls on the West to not create a panic in his country over potential Russian invasion. January or February 11th, 2022, U.S. National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan warns the public of a likelihood of a Ukrainian invasion, urges all Americans to leave Ukraine immediately. February 16th, 2022, according to U.S. intelligence, about 7,000 more troops, Russian troops are deployed on the Ukrainian border despite Russia's claims of pulling back troops. February 20th, 2022, a week ago from today. Putin states that diplomatic attempts to resolve the Ukrainian conflict must be stepped up to prevent further conflict. NATO must take Moscow's security demands seriously, he says. February 2022 or February 22nd, 2022, the U.S. and the U.K. state that they will begin imposing sanctions against Russia in the following days. February 23rd, 2022, Zelensky declares a state of emergency for all Ukrainians for the next 30 days. February 24th, Russia claims that Ukrainian shelling has destroyed an FSB facility on the Ukrainian-Russian border, and they had killed five Ukrainian soldiers and that had tried to cross over into the Russian territory. Ukraine would further de uh, deny this claim. Um, February 24th, Russia recognizes the breakaway states of Donetsk and Lugansk as sovereign states. February 24th, Putin orders a full-scale invasion of Ukraine. February 24th as well, Zelensky declares martial law in Ukraine. February 27th, where we are today, Vladimir Putin has ordered Russian military to put its de deterrence forces, which include nuclear weapons, on special alert. Last week, Mr. Putin warned that whoever tries to hinder us in Ukraine would see consequences you have never seen in history. And on February 27th, as of this recording, Russian troops have now fully encircled the capital city of Ukraine, of Kiev. So the question is, Noam, how did we get to such a rapid escalation just in the last basically three months? That's a good question, Steve. And I feel like <laughs> you're probably going to tell us. Yeah, I honestly thought this would be just a review from 2014 and on. But from the research I've done, you have to take a step back of a thousand years <laughs> to see how and why this sort of escalation has occurred. And to do that, we have to take a look at the history of Ukraine, specifically not the history of Russia, but of Ukraine. Despite Putin's claim, they have very differing history. Sure, they have branched off together, like they've built up in a similar like environment, but they are different. So we're going to start with the history of Ukraine. Geography really matters to Ukraine, right? Three critical geographic points have been the center of, of Ukraine's uh, development from a thousand years ago to now. Even the Russian invasion of 2022 has been about one of these three geographic reasons, the Black Sea. Spoiler. Um, there are the steppes, the Dnieper River, and the Black Sea. The steppes are critical to how the Ukrainian people came about into that region, how the Slav uh, migration from the West moved into this Eastern area of the people being back in, back in the day, like nomads, you know, moving across the plains and settling on a region we know of as Ukraine. There is the Dnieper River, which was formerly used by the Vikings in the North to move supplies from Sweden into Constantinople and building a... Uh, a trading post in the area known as Kiev today, and then the Black Sea being accessed to uh, a warm water port. And for Russia, that is the biggest sore spot that they have. So 
we're going to begin our journey in the year 1019. So what, a thousand and three years ago? Um, as the Vikings who are building up huge trade regions in the north through using these river rate regions um, as trading posts to move their supplies, um, they would build a massive city in the in the area of Kiev as a trading post. And the Slavs, using their nomadic culture, were starting to consolidate in that area of Kiev. And so they started to actually build a majority there. And eventually the Slavs would muster up enough power and population to remove these Vikings' influence out of uh, Kiev. And the, the Slavs would call these Vikings the Rus. That's going to be important here in a moment. The Slavs would eventually, after kicking out the, the, the Rus out of their territory, would desire a actually a bond back with them. So they kick them out and they're like, hey, can you come back? We actually want to build a culture together. And so together, the, three, the two of them would build a new nation state revolving around the Eastern Orthodox religion, calling themselves the Kievan Rus. And that's where Putin will claim that their origin is the same, Kiev being Ukraine, Rus being the Russians, and how their cultures blend. However, um, this sort of alliance would not last very long for Russia or for this new state. Uh, due to like huge infighting, the Kievan Rus Due to, I mean, due to their expansion rapidly into the region of what we know of as Ukraine, they would build ma major regional importance in that area. But as cities would rise up in Moscow and Kiev and Sevastopol, um, these people would start to have a lot of infighting. And so the Rus would fight, uh, or the Kiev and the Rus would fight within themselves. Um, and so they would fragment into disagreements over religion and regional importance. And their empire, even though being brand new and powerful, actually uh, hemorrhaged and almost collapsed immediately. And so by 1237, the people were too weak to fight a rising Mongol power in the east. And the Mongols, which would, would constitute the third largest empire in history, would just roll into the region of Kievan Rus and subjugate it. And the people lived under brutal Mongol opp oppression. We're not actually going to talk about too much of that. Instead, um, we're just going to jump straight to like how uh, under Mongol oppression, the, the three major cities would rise from this. So the Mongols would not destroy the Kievan Rus, yet sub, but yet subjugate them, right? And so from this, they built three major cities. They built, um, uh, they built Moscow, they built the city of Vilnius, and the city of Kiev. Three cities that would remain powerful yet under the Mongol rule. Eventually, the Mongols would cave in on their, own, on their own influence and fall apart. Moscow would rise in the north and become the origin of the Russian state. The other power would be Lithuania in the city of Vilnius, and uh, the third power being the Crimean Khant. Um, this part is critical to the state of, or the separation of where Ukrainian and Russian history starts to deviate. These three powers, when the Mongol Empire falls, are going to become their own nation-states. Um, since they lived under Mongol rule for 200 years and essentially were separated from each other, each three of these major cities developed separately from each other and developed their own cultures and their own history and their own ideas and more specifically their own language and religion. The Kievan Rus, which was a coalition of Vikings and Slavs was no longer there. The Kievan Rus Empire will fall apart once the Mongol will Mongols will claim them. And once they separate and from the ashes rise up these three powers is essentially where the three, or when Ukraine and Russia are no longer sharing a history. They may intersect eventually, or often essentially, but they no longer share a common ground after this point. Um... Moscow, like I said, is the origin of the Russians. The Lithuanians, ironically, a tiny little country in Europe today, is vital to how um, Russia and Kiev will develop. The third power, the Crimean Khan, is, is what we know of as modern-day Ukrainians today, were the, the smallest of the three powers rising after the Mongols separated. And so these three powers don't really like each other today. The, the Russians would hold on to um, a lot of Mongol influence. 
they would be, they would call themselves the Third Rome uh, and defenders of the Orthodox faith. This basically alienated them from most of the West. The state of Lithuania, which stands on what is modern-day Poland today, is they were a massive territory. Um, they were heavily influenced by the West and the Greek church. And because of the separation of religion, Lithuania and Moscow never got along. These two powers always were at odds with each other over religion, essentially. Lithuania getting the backing of, of moder- or most of Europe and Moscow essentially standing on its own. These empires would expand in their own way with tensions with themselves. But the most one- important one for the Ukrainian history is called the Crimean Khan. These guys took their influence also from the Mongols, and they were mostly a Slavic-heavy people, and the Russians would call them the Tatars, which are still a very large ethnic group today. And a majority of the people living in this Crimean Khan area were people escaping uh, serfdom. The practice of serfdom is just a fancy way of saying slavery. The Russians and the Lithuanians had this practice of where the rich land-owning nobles would um, subjugate the poor people and force them into, essentially, slavery, most of the time on huge uh, farms, basically. And so a lot of these Tatars and a lot of these people escaped uh, Lithuania and escaped Moscow and flee to this new territory in Crimea, whose lands were not developed yet. And therefore, they saw themselves as freed escaped people. The people escaping these areas were a mix of religion or different ethnic groups. These refugees made up a blend of culture that we today would call the Cossacks. You cannot talk about the history of Ukraine and their and their deep-rooted feeling of independence without ever talking about the Cossacks. These guys are by far the most important uh, component to Ukraine's history. Um, the Cossacks... Um, since they escaped serfdom, it was vital to them to have self-determination. And they were like militant in defending their own ideas. People that escaped slavery and never wanted to return to it and had this um, exposure to so many different cultures and exposure to so many different religions, they actually became like this nice, good melting pot of of. Of culture sounds pretty similar to America. Yeah, that's what gives the U.S. so much of its strength is because we are so diverse and willing to learn about it. I mean, obviously we have so much crap where we di- can't agree with each other, but there is a lot of power in diversity. So Moscow and Lithuania are so homogenous, while this Cossack region is so diverse and like so powerful militarily. Like they will be the deciding factor in a lot of battles coming forward of who can get the Cossacks on their turn, on their side. And they had the numbers to be a sizable power in the area. Like I said, that's going to be important for this coming area called the Northern Wars. This will be really important in the Northern Wars. Lithuania is eventually going to reach a boiling point with the Russian Empire. And the Swedes are going to jump in on this too. And the three nations uh, called the Northern Wars in the northern region of Europe are going to go to war with each other. Um, not really going to talk about that war. It's not important like battlegrounds and who everything, all that. But the important thing is all three sides going to war with each other were all waiting to see which side the Cossacks would join. The Cossacks would eventually um, get support from the Russian state and develop into a more powerful independent state that they are. And they would declare themselves a free state in what is modern-day eastern Ukraine today. And the Russians from going forward would use the Cossacks as hired muscle at, from their, uh, to, to win the northern wars. And a lot of Cossacks would agree, and they would go to battle for the Russians. And they were the deciding factor in winning the northern wars. Following this event, Russia would use Cossacks to then further um, settle the east. Catherine the Great would use them to uh, expand into the Siberian regions that we know of today, and that's a huge task. And they were responsible for clearing out tribes or gaining their support or whatnot. But they were used, like, historically as Russia's hired muscle. But peace between these two nations would not last. (laughs) Surprise, another war comes. And this second war is going to be called the Great Northern Wars. Not just the Northern Wars, the Great Ones. The nation... Of Lithuania, which was not fully destroyed in the Northern Wars, um, 
would rename itself to the nation of Lithuania Poland and wanted to limit Russia's power in the West. So they went into the Cossacks, they went to the Cossacks this time before the war started to gain their support against Russia, claiming that Russia was only going to use their people as a hired muscle, and so many of them are going to die for nothing. That if they stay on the Russian side, they're only going to experience loss and, and lose their nation's power. And Lithuania promised them that if they went into a war again and they joined their side, that Lithuania would promise complete independence and to leave them alone, not use them like Russia has been doing. And it works. They gain the support of the Cossacks in this area. And Russia, being completely devastated by this, like, this betrayal, is going to muster up an, a huge army. By the way, this is like in the 1700s. They're going to muster up a huge modern army, and they're going to not only crush the nation of Lithuania, they're going to completely destroy the Cossack army in like just two critical battles. And this time, Russia is going to make sure that this isn't going to happen again. And they partition the entire state of, of Lithuania and Poland, gaining it under their influence. Partition means they just took it. And so the nation of Lithuania, Poland is now float or now integrated into Russia. And as punishment, Russia would do the same to the Cossacks, to the Crimean area. And Russia um, would gain now control of what is modern day Ukraine. So for the next 300 years, Ukraine, the area we know of as Ukraine, is going to share um, one nation with Russia. And it's kind of funny that uh, Russia would then annex Crimea, <laughs> because that is, you know, if you think annexing Crimea is something new, that's not, because Russia did it in 1729 and took it. Because and then they did it again. In 2014. <laughs> Russia would learn very quickly after the Northern Wars that to be a major power in the world, they have to have to have a navy. And Russia, despite being the largest country in the world, has no sustainable access to a warm water port. Russia, ironically, even though it has the largest border sharing, like our border with water, right, with the ocean, is almost considered a landlocked country because so much of their border with the water is frozen year-round. And so they absolutely needed this, um, this geographic port of Crimea. So those three critical geographic points, the steppes were important to why the people were there. The Dnieper River is important why Kiev was developed, but this Black Sea for the last 300 years has been Russia's like desire is to maintain this Black Sea port. If you, ever, if you take a look at a map, the Black Sea is situated right next to Ukraine, Russia, um, and Turkey, I believe, right? Um, and so Russia needed to control Crimea at all times to maintain a warm water port, to maintain a large navy. Um, once Russia claims control of this Crimean region and the Kazakh people, they're going to make sure that the Kazakh people will never have the idea to rebel again, that they are going to crack down on this entire population. They will take away their weapons, which is a huge component to their personality, they're going to crack down on their Greek religion, their Greek orthodoxy, force them to become uh, uh, Russian Orthodox. They're going to literally outlaw their language of Ukrainian and force them all to learn Russian. The process was called ru Russification. It's kind of like... Um, it's kind of like a fancy way of saying assimilation. Uh, and it was championed by the Russian uh, Tsaritsa Catherine the Great. And here's a fun fact, because we haven't done these in a while. Um, uh, Catherine the Great was the first world leader to recognize the United States after we declared independence from the UK. So she was pretty cool. We liked her. She's the homie. Yeah, she would go toe-to-toe -to -toe with the British Navy just to keep uh, our ports safe from bombings. And, it, and she would be the one that would go to uh, other nations to convince them to join our side. So, but... Back to Russia and Ukraine, this Russification would then further drive a wedge between the people of Ukraine, or modern-day Ukraine, and Russia. Because the Russians defeated them in a war, they had this idea of superiority to the Ukrainians, or what is modern-day Ukraine, because they beat them, and we now control your land, and now we can tell you you can't be your religion or your language, that we control your life. And this forever would be the mindset the Russians even still maintain today. 
that the idea that we're better than you is the status quo. And this, like, because this deviation, that's why they still can't agree today. Yeah, they may have a similar history so far, but there is this separation now. And it's only compounded when enlightenment in the years 1881 start to hit Europe. Because the ideas of self-determination became popular in Europe thanks to the French Revolution when the people overthrew a monarchical government and became like a government led by the people also in the U.S. and all across Europe as more and more people were rising up and tearing down the ideas of monarchy, they had like the Ukrainian people thought, well, maybe this idea is not so outdated. That yeah, we don't like the Russians' control of our land, but that also means that maybe there is a chance for us. And compounded with that, Russia was also showing in the in the 19th century that they weren't the power that they thought they were. They were getting destroyed in the Crimean War against the Turks or the Ottoman Empire. They got <laughs> absolutely obliterated in the Russian-Japanese War. And it just exposed how weak the Tsars in Russia were. And so the Ukrainian people, the Cossacks, started to have this idea of self-determination reborn, essentially, in their minds. That this reality might be coming. The French could do it. The Americans could do it. And if other countries can go toe-to-toe with Russia and win, our time is coming. The ideas of revolution are, beca- are born. And in World War I kicks in, right after the Enlightenment in Europe. There's a lot of history in there. Maybe we'll do a whole season there. <laughs> but Russia is double bad in World War I. Really, they have very low uh, manpower, very low equipment for their troops. They're, they It really showcased how Russia lacked the modernization capabilities of the rest of Europe. And because Russia did so poorly and the ideas of revolution were are brewing in their nation, a civil war will break out. The Russian Revolution, Right. The White Army versus the Red Army. The Communists, the Bolsheviks versus the imperialist country. But, unfortunately, or fortunately, it wasn't necessarily such a black and white war. The Russian Revolution wasn't just communist versus non-communist. It was the culmination of all the independence movements all across the nation states of Russia. The Lithuanian people, the Polish people, the Ukrainian people, the Bolsheviks, the Mensheviks. It was a very intricate um, revolution. A lot of sides were fighting a lot of different people, including 11 different countries that got involved in the Civil War. Eventually, we know that the the Soviets would win, the, the Red Army, but the Russian Revolution is very complicated. And from the Ukrainian point of view, from their history, the, the Russian Revolution was not known as the Russian Revolution. It was known as the Ukrainian War for Independence. And it was an opportunity for them to finally get revenge for um, the Cossack, uh, like tearing, or for tearing down the Cossacks, for the Northern Wars, to get payback, really, and because they were cracked down on so rough. It was a way to express their grievances with the government. Um, uh, and unfortunately for the Ukrainians, the Russian Revolution ends with the Bolsheviks gaining power. And with that, they're going to maintain Ukraine under their, under their wing. Actually, at first, they try to get rid of it, the Bolsheviks, because after they would win the uh, the Russian Revolution, they gave Ukraine and Poland to the Germans as a, hey, thanks for letting us end World War One. Thanks for letting us withdraw. Here's a gift to you. But since Germany lost World War One, they would actually not keep Ukraine. The allies would make them give it back. So Russia gained Ukraine back without even necessarily wanting it. And so we enter the era of the Soviet Union. We've talked about the Soviet Union extensively in our Afghan unit. So we're not going to go too far into the ideals of it, the history of it, and why it fell apart. But we're going to talk about how the Soviet Union impacted um, the development of modern-day Ukraine. The borders are drawn after uh, Ukraine is gifted back to Russia. And that's where we get our modern-day border where we are today. Um, The USSR would heavily invest in these regions with industry and resource exploitation. Ukraine is a very resource-rich nation, especially their soil. Um, they have one of the most fertile lands in the world. Um, I think even today, they're the third largest grain exporter in the world. And because of that, they became the breadbasket of the Soviet Union. They fed most of the nation. Their leader, the Russian leader, Stalin, noticed that 
it wasn't operating at peak efficiency the Ukrainian farms, that maybe they could be done a little better. Stalin's kind of a a butthead and an idiot, and so he instituted major land reforms in Ukraine. And in Ukraine, this land reform, quote-unquote, would be called Holodomor, or the Great Famine, the Great Starvation, because Stalin went in there and just flipped the entire industry on its head and tried to revamp it and change it with a five-year plan, the result of this would be five million Ukrainians would die from a land reform. And so the Soviet Union was a very oppressive state to the Ukrainians, not because they were like it was a racial thing or it was like a, a cultural thing. It was more of an exploitive thing. Ukraine had something that the Soviets coveted, which was resources and money. And the communists are really good at exploiting things that they want. And so a, a death toll of 5 million people was really not that much to Stalin. To him, it was just a statistical issue, right? Oh, we got rid of 5 million workers. And he would never like even acknowledge that what he did in this great famine was at all relevant to him. And so he was building this idea of Ukraine despising Russia. And so when Hitler would invade in 1939 or 1941 into the Soviet Union, so many Ukrainians would see the people, the Nazis going into their territory as liberators, as saviors. Russians would never forgive them for that because so many Ukrainians would join the Nazis against the Russians, despite whatever... Um, ideas the Nazis had against anti-Jewish people or anti-Jews in Europe, the Ukrainians almost didn't care because the Russians were doing so much worse things to them. You can't say they're one people when you would exploit them at this level. Eventually, the Nazis would start killing the Ukrainians at such a high level that they couldn't even maintain their pseudo-alliance and they would eventually join back with the USSR to expel the, the Nazis out of their territory. But they're not going to forget the, the famine. And when the opportunity arises, just 50 years later, when the Soviet Union starts to crack under the pressure of a, um, a corrupted military or a bankrupted military operations in Afghanistan, a throwback, um, and the disaster at Chernobyl, Ukrainian government officials start to call out for independence from the Soviet Union. Um, a guy named Leonid Kravchuk, at, uh, the leader of the, the Ukrainian satellite state in the USSR, and the president of the Russian state, Boris Yeltsin, would both start to secretly draw plans to have an independent state away from the USSR. Both, both of these people were leaders of their nations under the banner of the USSR. And on December 19, in December 1991, they would finally make their move and call for referendums of nation-states in the Soviet Union, breaking apart uh, basically what, a 90-year empire, an 80-year empire, and Russia thought that, it would f that this new nation that broke away from the USSR would actually kind of break apart and reform under the Commonwealth of Independent States. They thought that um, when the Soviet Union fell apart, these nations would still be one country together. These satellite states of Ukraine, you know, Kazakhstan, Russia, Lithuania, all these nations would remain under the Soviet Union under their banner, but um, under a new name, and that wasn't communist, right? But Ukraine finally saw their opportunity to fully declare themselves completely independent from USSR. And they wanted nothing but to be recognized as an equal and independent state, which actually really surprised the Russian Empire or the Russian, the new Russian Federation. Boris Yeltsin did not expect that. He thought they would still t stay together as the Commonwealth of Independent States. And at this point, a man in East Berlin, a KGB agent, witnessing the entire fall, like the fall of the Soviet Union, would start to brew this idea that the Soviet Union's falling apart was a tragedy that what he was witnessing was the collapse of the best empire in the world and that the betrayal of the Ukrainian state would not be acceptable and that he would eventually change that. A guy that we know of as Vladimir Putin was watching keenly. And so for the next nine years, not even for the next eight years, Putin would 
use his drive of, uh, I don't want to say revenge, but almost revenge to get back at the people that ripped apart the Soviet Union, what he believed was the best empire. And that just like the, the czars in the northern wars who saw the betrayal of the Cossacks, Putin was driven by the same thing. He was going to get this nation back. He was going to rebuild the Soviet Union. And so eventually they would form a con- the, 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 the Confederation of Independent States would happen in some sort. It would not be the joining of borders. It would not be the joining of nation states. And yet, instead, it would be rebranded as a, uh, a trade network. The Confederation of Independent States would be the, uh, all the former Soviet states coming together to economically benefit each other, including Ukraine. And it was designed to normalize relations and to facilitate trade, basically a feel-good measure to keep the Eastern Bloc from falling apart. For Ukraine, this was also a huge agreement. In the clause of the Confederation of Independent States, Ukraine agreed to give up 4,000 nuclear weapons to Russia. In return, Russia would do, unofficially, they would do their best to maintain Ukraine's independence. Kind of a terrible idea. You can't just give up 4,000 nuclear weapons without putting it on paper saying that Ukraine or that Russia was going to get your back. And so now Russia, Ukraine basically, you know, declawed itself. They just removed their best bargaining chip, hoping that Russia would, you know, maintain their sovereignty. For the next 10 years uh, after the Confederation of Independent States is signed, Ukraine and Russia would share a lot of trade and open borders with each other. They were kind of coexisting. But um, this came with some uh, critical separation. In Ukraine today, 67% of the Ukrainians speak Ukrainian, while a huge minority of 30% speak Russian, and about 15% consider them ethnically Russian. This idea that this is where kind of Putin calls it a historic Russia, because so many of them claim to be Russian, they think that, well, we're one people, we're all one organization. One of the things that I was reading about when I was kind of doing my own research on this was that <clears throat> at one point, I can't remember like the the dates or the years or anything, but at one point, Russia actually sent Russian, like pure, I guess, I don't want to say purebred Russian, but that <laughs> sounds wrong. But like, that's the word I'm looking for is like full-blooded Russians and sent them to Ukraine specifically so that Russian people could like repopulate Ukraine. And I can't remember like the reasoning behind that. Um but they basically took like a large like group of Russian people and just sent them to Ukraine so that Ukraine would become more ethnically Russian yeah. as opposed to Ukraine. And they did that on purpose. Yeah. Does that kind of tie into? A hundred percent. Because he wanted Ukrainians as a sizable minority to be able to call out to like, you know, to Papa Russia or whatever. Hey, help. The Ukrainians are suppressing our culture. You know, we're, we're as much Russian. They're trying to change us, right? It was like it was a, a calculated move by Putin to build up this Russian minority. And very specifically, like you just mentioned that operate or operation, whatever you want to call it, he did that in the east, like on the border between Russia and Ukraine. Ukraine, uh, the eastern region is primarily Russian influence, ethnic Russians, either by design or by by convenience, right? And that's why today we'll we'll get there here in a minute, but that's why there are um, civil wars in that area between Ukrainian forces and um, Russian forces. So because modern day Ukraine is so diverse, it's it's two thirds Ukrainian, one third Russian, um, they couldn't ever fully decide post Soviet Union which side of like the former Iron Curtain they wanted to be on. A lot of the former Soviet states in the Eastern Bloc would join, you know, the European Union, NATO, closer ties with the West, right? Kind of flowing into that era of democracy and free trade and capitalism and putting behind them the ideas of old Russian state. Russia was really upset about that. They just lost their huge Eastern Bloc buffer. The entire Warsaw Pact, the Russian Empire, or the Soviet Empire, just fell apart in between, in front of their eyes, right? This great military power is now gone, and their border between NATO, the NATO border and the Soviet Union shrunk by, like, 2,000 kilometers, right? They just lost their buffer. And so Russia is terrified of this. 
And so the idea of Ukraine ever moving in that direction was a, a, a fearful thought for, you, for Russia. And so Ukraine would always teeter between joining the West and maintaining relations with the East, with Russia. And they would eventually make a move right around 2012 or 20, 2008, 2012. They kind of start showing signs that they're going to be joining more of the Western side of their influence, that the, the Kievan government wanted to start seeking better relations with the European Union and specifically with NATO. Ukraine would actually submit an application to join NATO, the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, a military organization designed to counter Russia. This would then grant the NATO a 2,200-mile border. So when you say that NATO was designed to counter Russia, do you mean like the entire point of the creation of NATO was mm-hmm. specifically yeah. to fight Russia? Yeah. Why? Because during the, its creation, it was the Cold War. And so, um, you know, we remember that back in Afghan, we talked about the idea of containment and quarantining Russia. NATO was one of those ideals of let's militarily quarantine Russia. So I have a question. So I've, I've been hearing a lot about like NATO troops, be, like whether or not they'll be sent into to like this conflict or whatever. Mm-hmm. So when we talk about NATO troops, what does that mean exactly? Because NATO is just like a group mm-hmm. of countries. So is is like the NATO army just like a like a, a group of soldiers that are just gathered from all of the different countries that are involved with NATO and they all come together to fight under one umbrella? Yeah. Yeah, basically. The one thing is that they share a command structure. Like NATO troops can be like American, Canadian, and German soldiers, but with like a British commander, right? Mm-hmm. So they share intel, they share borders, they share troops. Um, but yet, like you said, they're still sovereign, right? They're still their own people, their own nation. Like America can withdraw their NATO forces while Britain can increase theirs, right? Gotcha. So it's not like the NATO army. It's like the NATO command structure, basically. Okay. And Ukraine wanted to join that structure. The thing with, uh, there's a certain clause in NATO that if you attack one NATO country, you attack them all. And Ukraine thought, well, if we are going to make a move and join Europe, it's best if we get their protection too. So Ukraine made moves to join NATO. They submitted an application. Yet there's also a clause in NATO that says no nation can join unless they meet a certain threshold of like democracy and certain like threshold of capitalism, free marketism. And there's a big one too that says they cannot be in an active war or fighting their own like civil war. You have to be a stable, peaceful country. Makes sense. It's kind of like a safety clause for NATO. And so for the next two years, uh, Ukraine is going to make big moves to separate themselves from Russia. It's kind of like a, they're ghosting them, right? They're going to block them. They're going to start cutting trade. They're going to start putting border restrictions on them. And here's a big one. They even started to build a wall between Russia and Ukraine. Trump would have loved that, right? <laughs> and so this wall was starting to be built. They started to build relations with the European Union, making moves to become a stable democracy. They made huge um, uh, notions that they were going to, like, modernize, you know, blank and blank, right? They were going that direction of Europe. And for Russia, they kind of took it personally, right? They couldn't just let this happen. They cannot lose this huge critical ally of Ukraine. Once they lose Ukraine, that means the entire Eastern Bloc had joined NATO, that their entire former empire was now here. And going back to that geographical importance, they can't lose the Black Sea. They cannot lose access to a warm water port. And if NATO or if Ukraine joins NATO and Russia eventually makes a move to take back their ports, they would have to go to war with all of NATO. So question about like the Black Sea and that warm water port with all of like the global warming stuff that's happening today. Wouldn't a lot of Russia's northern ports kind of be opening up more Mm -hmm. because a lot of the ice is like melting? Yeah, dude, Russia's investing billions in making uh, their northern ports uh, viable for the next 20 years. Like the next most important trade route in the world is that northern trade route that's starting to melt right now. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's on- ironically why uh, Trump wanted, not ironically, why he wanted to buy Greenland. It wasn't actually a joke. The dude was like, yo, the, the north is melting. We should get a, we should get a, you know, a good port up there. So you're right. 
but they that's way out in the future and Russia can't wait on that. Yeah, that's going to be a huge economically viable thing, but right now they need this port. Gotcha. The port of Sevastopol in Crimea. And so uh, they're going to start, Russia's going to start laying the foundation of revolutionary ideas in Crimea. A, like you said, they're going to start putting ethnically Russian people into critical regions in Ukraine and having these people cry out for, hey, we need independence from Ukraine. They're moving too far to the West. We need to still maintain our Russian heritage. And so these people, these Russians in Ukraine are going to hold a referendum in the area of Crimea. This, this referendum claimed that 100% of the population of Crimea wanted to uh, secede from Ukraine and become an independent state. And they did. And Russia is going to use that referendum as justification to send in their army to uh, gain control of Crimea. Um, and Russia will occupy that territory. This all happened in 2014, by the way. So if you think the 2022 conflict just started three months ago, it's not. It started in 2014, essentially. Russia would then occupy this territory um, gaining back to one of those critical regions. They now have full control of a warm water port of Crimea and um, the Black Sea, um, and specifically Sevastopol. And so this idea of revolution from Ukraine would spark a, a movement, like a rebellion in the Donetsk region of the cities of Donetsk and Lugansk. Um, these areas would be supported by Russian military and Russian finance to secede from the Ukraine and start a war against the Ukrainian government. But Russia did not want to officially get involved in this region, so they would only send in, like, military equipment. Russians were so... <laughs> they thought they were so clever about it, so the Russian separatists fighting in these regions would uh, literally just be Russian soldiers who took off their Russian flag banner on their arm, and the Russian army would accidentally leave behind equipment on the border that rebels accidentally found and took over, right? Like... They didn't really have like a clever way of doing this. Uh, but it didn't work out for Putin the way he wanted to. These conflicts would not end super quick. The, the rebellions in Donetsk and Lugansk would be um, would draw out way too long. That thanks to Western support and uh, military aid given to these regions, the Ukrainian government was able to substantially hold back the Russian advance in these regions which is why we've had, what, an eight-year civil war here that's killed upwards of, like, 50,000 people already. Um, and this, he, Putin needed to step back and decide how this civil war would play out for him long-term. He still wanted to regain control of Ukraine, but he also gained huge, like, breathing room, right? Ukraine can no longer join NATO right now because they're in an active civil war. So he achieved his goal, but he also didn't get it the way he wanted to. His ultimate goal would have been to what is happening now. He kind of wanted to propel the Donetsk rebellion into a wide-scale rebellion, and that he would use that as justification to invade the rest of Ukraine. Which kind of brings us to where we are today. For the next eight years, Putin has built an escalation in the region of Ukraine, in the Donetsk region, right? And that's why, just about a week ago, Putin was he sat down and finally made the decision that he would recognize the Donetsk and the Lugansk regions as independent states. That their rebellion would be recognized the same as the, as the Crimean one, that these people are ethnically Russian being suppressed by the, the Ukrainian government. So if that was his plan all along, then why didn't he recognize them as independent states earlier? Right, and that's because he just essentially wasn't ready yet. Because... He thought the, uh, the the rebellions would end so quickly and that he would just gain control and he would weather the U.S. sanctions. Sanctions were hit hard on Russia in 2014 when he took Crimea and his economy took a dip, a huge hit. And he just financially, economically could not continue to hemorrhage like this. He had to stop, consolidate, rebuild, do it again later. But it also goes to show that Putin didn't have a grand master plan. And it's kind of funky because in international affairs, we talk about rational and irrational actors. Are, is this person acting in the best interest of their nation and will they be deterred by annihilation, right? Like that's a rational actor. 
And we assume for so very long that Putin is a rational actor. In reality, he's not really. The Lugansk and Donetsk like, rebellions kind of goes to show that he didn't have a plan. He had an idea, and he went with it, and it took him eight years to figure out what he wanted to do with it. And now his full-scale invasion of Ukraine is because, or now he can you can play it out, because uh, now he figured out what he wanted. And what he wants is essentially to not let Ukraine go the ways of the other nations of the former Eastern Bloc. To sum it up, guys, to show you really what this haul has been about, it's Russia cannot stand the idea of losing Ukraine to the West. And he knows this one simple fact. The West and America can lose Ukraine, but Russia cannot. Right, and, so like the West can afford to lose yes, Ukraine, but Russia can't afford. No. And that's why he his calculated move of an invasion, he knows that there will be no escalation from the West. While, the, while he can. He can go all in and invade at essentially no response militarily. His threats of nuclear deterrence and his threats of a war that no one has ever seen is not going to happen. America and the West and NATO is not going to get involved because Ukraine never got to the point where they joined NATO, right? They never got to the point where they joined the European Union. And so we're not going to essentially get involved with it. How do you think things would have played? This is more like speculation, but how do you think things would have played out if Russia or uh, if Ukraine had actually been able to join NATO mm-hmm. when they wanted to? This would not have happened at all. Russia would not have even put troops on the border. There's no way that they would have risked. Like they, Russia can't go toe to toe with NATO anymore. Back when they were the Soviet Union, sure, but like as they are right now, they can maybe take on one or two countries on NATO. But there are you know dozens now, right? Plus the U.S. We would just destroy them. And Russia knows that. And Russia essentially is an actor that is dying. The state of Russia is a country that they know if they don't make drastic moves or critical changes is not going to be uh, like a, a, a familiar face in the 21st century. Their economy is shrinking. Their population is decreasing. And their economy is based around one or two um you know, quant- like one or two items now, right? They're a primarily gas-operated nation, right? They get ma- Their economy is not diverse. And they know that if they don't make some dramatic moves, Russia's not going to exist anymore. So this is basically Putin's last-ditch effort to, like, maintain some sense of, like, power on the global stage. Absolutely. Russia wants to maintain a regional influence. They want to m- remain a regional power. R- Russia and Putin specifically is claiming... Um, that America is imposing on upon an agreement that they made when the Soviet Union fell apart, that America would not, um, you know, move forward in the former Eastern Bloc, that they would respect Russia's sphere of influence and that we're encroaching on that, encroaching on that, right? That, like, that's what they thought. And there was no real agreement to that. And so Putin's using that as justification. Gotcha. And so it's kind of, but also there's this, there's two pictures being painted here. There's the desire of Russia and there are the desires of the man known as Vladimir Putin. Putin, in in of himself, is also trying to become a man of the history books. The history of Russia, he wants to be the history of Putin. He wants this to be so tied to the character that he is. He has been the president for the last 23 years or 22 years, and he wants to See, he wants the world to see that he did this, that he built this back, that he created this idea. And so maybe Putin himself is not a rational actor. Instead, he is a man that wants to be remembered. And that this like all all out offensive on Kiev and on Ukraine is just him trying to show the world that he himself is not weak. And I don't think there should be an argument to be made. Oh, there's, you know, there's an I, there's reasons on both sides that Ukraine and Russia have, like there's justification, there's not. This is a completely irresponsible and completely just flat out active aggression. So then let's talk about that because <clears throat> there are a lot of people on Russia's side, obviously, that agree with what Putin is doing. Yeah. And then there are also a lot of people, again, also on Russian side that don't agree like yeah. there are 
like you see, you see stories all the time of like Russian soldiers that just don't want to be fighting. Yeah. So like, what? Why is there that kind of separation within Russia and like their、mm-hmm. own citizens of people that are sided with Putin and people that aren't? Yeah. So Putin made a miscalculated move, right? He assumed that because Ukraine thinks they're thirty percent Russian, that thirty percent of Ukraine would join him in like supporting him in this. In reality, even of his own people in Russia, only ten percent of the population supported an invasion. Only ten percent. Only ten percent. Take a look at like live feeds in Moscow and Saint Petersburg and Vladivostok. Like Putin has lost a lot of control of his own cities. This man stands almost alone in this invasion. The Ukrainian people obviously don't like this. The West doesn't like it, and his own people don't like it. Putin has lost tons of support in this, and but like I said, there's an intertwined picture here. Putin doesn't care the best interest of Russia. He cares what are the best interests of Putin. And at this point, we're at his age, and at the point like in his career, he can afford to act irresponsible, because there's not much time left for him, really. Right, either in power or in lifetime, right, and so he can do this, and so and the sanctions of every country going on him right now, like he's he's dooming this country, right? Just this morning,、um, the European Union and the United States aren't allowing Russian passengers to fly into their territories. Even Russia's stuck where they are now, all because of like the irrational moves of Putin.、Um, I don't know. This is going to be an international event that's going to be playing out for the next couple years. We're not talking days. This is going to be playing out for years, and maybe we'll we'll revisit this topic months from now and see how it's changed.、Um, but that's the simple history of Ukraine and how we led to the conflict where we are today. I know I usually do a, a fun monologue at the end, but not this time. This, this is just sad. <laughs> Yeah, you know, war is, you know, it's been glorified a lot in the last, you know, you know, fifty years through social social media, but through, you know, pop culture, right? Gaming and movies have made it seem like it's such an honorable thing that so much so much cool things can happen there. But we're entering the first war that is in the modern era, right? We can see live videos and pictures. And yeah, it's so all that. It's almost like dystopian feeling、yeah. when you're scrolling through like Twitter or、mm-hmm. Instagram and you're seeing like memes、yeah. and like gaming channels and stuff, and then like all of a sudden it's just like war footage. Yeah, and then back to memes and stuff. But like, then it's, it's so weird. But the, the, the we're cra- so like desensitized to it. The crazy thing about that is it can finally showcase the brutality of it. Right, war is. Brutal and it is carnal and it is just simple, right? Like it is just not complicated. It is death and destruction, right? And to see that in the life, it is going to turn the world, Putin's own people, against him. And I think what's so unique about this is that, like in the older wars, like World War One, World War Two, there the only. Like information that people had about the war was propaganda. Yeah, because people were really only seeing what the media wanted them to see and what governments wanted them to see about the war. And so people's emotions towards the war and the conflicts were one hundred percent directly influenced by the government. Whereas today. People are able to kind of form their own opinions about it because what you're seeing on social media is literally what's happening, like is、yeah. live video of what's happening, and so people are able to come to their own conclusions and not be so swayed、mm-hmm. into thinking one specific thing by by a government. Yeah, and that's not to say that there's not propaganda. I'm sure our own government's probably censoring a ton of stuff.、Oh, yeah. Don't even mention the Russian government. Yeah. So like the Russian propaganda machine is powerful, so they're probably. Turning this message as much as they can,、um, but yeah, our, my、uh, prayers go out to the people of Ukraine. Right, like、yeah. this is a hold on, guys. <laughs> you know, Hang in there. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. This is my prediction. I don't like to do speculation, but I think Russia is trying to take over the state of of Kiev, right, and not necessarily maintain control of it. I bet that they're trying to destabilize it enough. To where they're going to put a pro-Russian government in in Ukraine, and for their goal is that Ukraine would then make moves to rejoin、uh, closer ties with Russia. But 
um, that's all I got for you. All right. Well, uh, we do have one quick announcement, Steve. Do you want to? No. I just talked for like 40 minutes straight. Okay. <laughs> Fair enough. So uh, we are going to be taking another hiatus. Um, after we just wrapped up our season on drugs, we now just did this special episode on Ukraine, which, uh, as Steve mentioned, we may come back within the next month or so, just as things develop, we might do like another special episode just, just to kind of revisit all these topics. Um, but for the time being, uh, March is a very busy month for both of us. Yeah. Um, and so we're just going to be taking a break to recharge, refocus, figure out what what direction we want to take the podcast in. Um, hopefully it won't be as long of a break as it was last time. Um, but we are committed to the podcast and we will be back for sure. Um, so, and as always, don't forget to check out our merch. Yeah. Check out the merch. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Thank you guys for listening and we'll see you in the next episode.